Welcome to the weekly podcast of Covenant Grace Church. Covenant Grace Church is one church meeting in multiple locations. This message was recorded at our Menifee campus. Where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him, and wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, The teacher says, Where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished and ready. Then prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve. And as they were reclining at the table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and to say to him one after another, Is it I? He said to them, It is one of the twelve who is one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better that that man if he had not been born. Institution of the Lord's Supper. And as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to them, and said, Take this, is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, Even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows twice, You will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, If I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. And then they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John. And it began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. 
the hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Let's pray. Father, we come before you on this uh, special service, Lord, as we think about your son and his offering of himself on the cross. And not only that, we think about you offering your son. And we pray, Lord, that we would have a deeper sense of what you did for us, a deeper sense of our sin, but a much deeper sense of your love as well tonight. And that's something only your spirit can do. So we pray, come, uh, enlighten our eyes, enlighten our hearts, help us to see the cross more clearly. In Jesus' name, amen. And so, guys, um, if, you, if you're new here, we're really thankful you're here. Um, you're coming to a service that's different than our usual. We have, you know, dimmer lights and uh, more subdued music, and it's a special night. And so if you're coming here for the first time, it's actually a great time for you to come because we're looking at the very heart of what Christianity is about, about the cross. Uh, the 19th century uh, preacher Charles Spurgeon advised Christians to abide hard by the cross and search the mystery of his wounds. I love that. He says, abide hard by the cross and search the mystery of his wounds. And that's what we want to do tonight. Um, Tonight we want to see some of what we can see about the cross. And there are mysteries here. I think when we look at the cross, there are things we can't fully understand and can't fully know. But we want to know as much as we can about what Jesus did on the cross on that Friday, probably on April 3rd, 33 AD, most likely, when he was nailed to that cross. And we want to abide hard by that tonight and search its mysteries. Um, What we have here in Mark 14 is a very unusual picture of Jesus. Most of you guys have read this story or heard this story so many times that it doesn't seem strange to you. But Jesus' demeanor, his change in demeanor in the Garden of Gethsemane would have been something shocking to his disciples. Because for three years, these disciples have literally followed Jesus. Like you might say, I'm a follower of Jesus. These people physically, literally followed Jesus. They walked with him everywhere. They heard everything he did. They ate with him. They, they saw all of his actions, heard all of his words. And Jesus was nothing but fully confident, right? When you look at the account of Mark before this, Jesus is confident and bold in all he does. I mean, just think about the way he healed the sick and he taught with authority and he he cast out demons and he raised the dead and he had the gall to forgive sins. I mean, he said, your sins are forgiven. It, confidence, right? Um, and just this week, you know, we think about Palm Sunday and the triumphal entry and Jesus coming in and he comes in on the donkey and they're all crying out, Hosanna, save us. And they're, they're seeing him as their king, their Messiah, their savior king. And, and the religious teachers say, you know, make your disciples be quiet. And he says, if they, if they are silent, the stones would cry out. And this is a confident, bold person as he comes into Jerusalem. And then we see him cleansing the temple. He drives out all the money changers and stuff this very holy week. And then we see him refuting the religious experts and and, and all the things that they're teaching. But now the disciples are sensing this kind of dark cloud coming over Jesus. Jesus' whole demeanor is changing. You see it in verse 18. He says, one of you will betray me. In verse 24, as he's um, talking about, 23 and 24, as he's talking about communion there in that last supper, he, he picks up the bread and he breaks it and he says, this is my body. Picks up a cup and he says, this is my blood poured out, right? In verse 27, he says, you will all fall away. Do you see the darkness coming in? 
I mean, one dark thing after another that Jesus is saying, you can see he's deeply disturbed. In verse 27, he says, you will all fall away. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. In verse 34, it says that the disciples noticed that he became greatly distressed and deeply troubled. In verse 34, he admits, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. And then we see him in verse 36, he's collapsed on the ground and he's calling out to his father in heaven, begging him for some other option. He says, Abba, Father, all things are possible to you. Remove this cup from me. You hear the desperation in his voice? And it says that he came back and he said the same words over and over again. Guys, this is a totally different tone of Jesus than they're used to. Something very dark is coming upon him. And it's here, guys, in the Garden of Gethsemane, that Jesus is experiencing the crushing anxiety of the contemplation of his death the next day on the cross. He's being crushed. And it's actually a very fitting name for a, for a person to be crushed in anxiety. Gethsemane means the olive press. And so on that hill, there would have been lots of olive trees. And Gethsemane means olive press. There was a press where they would take the olives and they would crush them down and squeeze them and get the oil out of them. And that's exactly what we see happening to Jesus here in the Garden of Gethsemane. Under the anxiety of the death coming, he's being crushed. He's being squeezed. He's being brought to his psychological breaking point on this night before the cross. There's another reason this is strange. This story is strange too, besides it's a deep change in his his um, demeanor. It's also strange when we think about the degree that Jesus fears death. And, and I know that sounds strange to you, but if you think of all the other stories of epic heroes and how they go to death, they're always portrayed as going without fear, with total peace, right? I mean, we think of the story of Socrates, right? He's told that he's sentenced to die, and he's told he needs to drink the hemlock, and people are crying, say, don't cry for me, and he takes it real confidently, right? Not Jesus. There's something different here. We think about Stephen, the first Christian martyr. You know, they're going to stone him. They're going to throw rocks at him until he dies. And what does he do? He, he gives this beautiful, historical, redemptive story of Jesus throughout the Old Testament and ties it in to the New Testament. He gives this beautiful story of Israel's history, and then he prays for his killer's salvation. He's not weeping. He's not scared. We can think of uh, an example from 1555, Nicholas uh, Ridley and Hugh Latimer. They were burned at the stake by Bloody Mary, Mary I. And um, as the flames were rising up on them, as they were being burned at the stake, Hugh, Hugh Latimer, he encourages Ridley and he says this, Be of good comfort, Mr. Ridley, and play the man. We shall this day light a candle by God's grace in England that shall never burn out. Who says he's being burned at the stake? And so we have to ask ourselves, why does Jesus go with far more terror and far less peace than any of those men? And it's not because he's less brave. Jesus is the most brave and the most courageous person in history. The difference is, is that none of those people died the death Jesus was going to die. Jesus had a very unique death to die, and this is very fitting that he would have this response, even as the bravest man ever. None of those men faced any kind of death like his. And when I say that, I'm not just talking about crucifixion. I'm going to talk about crucifixion in a sec. But there's something even deeper than physical crucifixion that Jesus is fearing in the garden that's squeezing him down. Um, speaking of physical crucifixion, um, at that time, crucifixion was a very common 
way that uh, the Romans would torture people and execute them. Thousands of people were being crucified regularly by the Romans, so much so that we have lots of historical accounts of exactly what it was like. We have lots of archaeological information. You know, you can find in ossuaries where they store people's bones after they would take them out of the tomb. You can find bones that have marks from crucifixion on them. And so they knew um, a lot about crucifixion. Um, uh, in 1986, um, in the Journal of the American Medical Association, which, aside from like the New England Journal of uh, Medicine, is one of the most famous ones, there actually was in 1986 a, a paper on the physical death of Jesus. This is in the Journal of the American Medical Association. And it's really interesting because he goes through all the description medically of what was going on. There's diagrams, which I'm going to show you in a little bit, of what exactly was being done. And so they, they give all the details to doctors, you know, in diagrams so that they can see physically what was crucifixion. And I'm going to show you some of those things. My, my desire is not to be sensationalistic or somehow, um, you know, exaggerate what happened if you, as if you could. But I want to just show you. And so uh, let me just remind you what it is. Because the early readers, it just says he was crucified. They would have known, right? They would have seen that as they travel along the road. They would have seen people as very public, how people were crucified. Well, archaeological evidence shows that um, when people were crucified in his time, they weren't crucified through the palms or invite cards that we have on your, ta- on your chairs. There, they show a hole in the palm. That's a more common depiction in art. But archaeologically, we know that people were crucified actually through their wrists. That would actually hold them there better. And so um, what they would have done to Jesus, what they did to Jesus, after he was whipped and beaten and, and walked up to Golgotha, they would have had a beam on the ground. They would have laid him down there. They would have had him put his arm out. And I'll tell you what, Jesus offered his arm, unlike a lot of uh, the victims of crucifixion. He was a willing substitute. He put his arm out. They would have felt for the depression in your wrist. If you feel right here, there's a little depression right there in between your little carpal bones. And they would have felt for that. They would have put the nail right on there and they would just pound it down until it totally held their arm there. And you can see how tightly that would hold it. And, and what you do when you do that, unlike the palm, is you spread apart those little carpal bones and there's a, a median nerve that runs right in there. Any of you guys dealt with carpal tunnel? That's median nerve pain. That's a, a, a squeezing of the carpal tunnel so that the median nerve is, is irritated. It's very debilitating. We're talking about him being pinned on the wood with a nail strumming his median nerve. He's hanging by that. After they would have uh, nailed that arm, they would have gone for his other one. Once again, he would have offered it out, right? No one does that. Maybe they'd offer the first one. You don't offer the second one once you know what it's like, but he would have offered the other one. They would have pounded that heavy wrought iron nail into his wrist. They would have left some, some looseness to that. They don't want to tighten him down, and I'll tell you why that is in a second. And then what they would have done is, once he's attached to that heavy beam, they would have taken that beam, it's the horizontal beam, lifted it up, and set it on top of a vertical beam. The crosses that they used were actually more capital T-shaped than lowercase T-shaped, and so it would have been a heavy beam, so he'd be hanging from his wrist. The next thing they would do is take his, his right foot and put it over his left foot, and they drove a nail right through both of his feet together, and uh, they would have driven it right through his, the arch of his feet and uh, through the metatarsal bones. Once again, splitting those bones apart from each other as the nail goes in. In that area, you have a, a peroneal and plantar nerve right in that area. So it would have been searing pain as soon as he was attached there. Once again, they left his, his legs with some slack. And the reason for that is, guys, is that if you were to affix Jesus on the cross, tighten down as tight as you could, he wouldn't be able to breathe. 
Turns out that when you're tight on a cross like that, they can't breathe. And the thing with the Romans is they don't want this to be quick. You know, the goal is not that you would die in an hour. The goal is that it would take many hours or even many days for you to die. And so they want you to be able to breathe. And so what Jesus would have to do if he wanted to breathe is he would have to push up on the nail in his feet. Okay? If you want to be able to expand and, and breathe, you got to push up on the nail on your feet. And you do that as long as you can. And you have that searing pain of the, the peroneum plantar nerve in his feet. And, and he's somewhat giving rest to his hands at that point. And then when he can't bear it any longer, he would hold his breath and drop down. And he'd be held by his wrist. Doing that, his median nerves are going to be shooting fiery pain um, down his arms. As he hangs there, he waits as long as he can. Um, like that until he needs to breathe again and he pushes himself up. The way you died by crucifixion was either by shock or a, a lot of times by asphyxiation. Because eventually you got so tired you couldn't push yourself up anymore um, to breathe. And so Jesus would have done that all day, guys. I mean, he would have, you know, pushed up, you know, to get some slack to breathe and then he dropped down and then he'd push up and he dropped down. And the pain, guys, was inescapable you know he twisted he 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 writhed he you try and move away from pain but then when you move away to that pain you feel other pain here you know he's moving his pain around as much as he can writhing all day like that the pain was excruciating in fact the word excruciating comes from the word cross crux x means from excruciating means from the cross it was actually it's a word about crucifixion and that's all captured, guys, in Mark 15, 24, when they just simply say, they crucified him. They crucified him. And we need to hear that, guys, because for us, we don't see these things. Maybe you watch the Passion of the Christ movie or something like that. They would have seen this all the time. It was a Roman deterrent to see people um, twisting on a cross all day. And guys, as horrendous as the physical sufferings of the cross were, that is not what terrorizes Jesus in the garden. I know that because of verse 36. Look at verse 36. Jesus does not say, Father, remove this cross from me or remove these nails from me. What does he say? He says, remove this cup from me. There's something deeper than the nails and the cross that he fears. What is the cup? It must be some fiery hell that he is got to be it's horrible if it's worse than what I just described. And it was. If you look at the word the cup in the Old Testament, it's, it's a picture of God's wrath. If you look at um, Psalm 75, 8, it says, in the, cup, in the hand of the Lord is a cup of foaming wine, well mixed, which he pours out, and all the wicked of the earth will drink its dregs. Idea there is that the cup is an image simply of God's pent up, stored up wrath, his holy anger against sin. And it's, uh, it's an image that's, that's throughout the Old Testament. It even appears in Revelation. And, you know, I was thinking about it today, and it's like, it's like every day we sin, every day we willingly rebel against God, and every day that cup, it's like, like a coffee maker brewing coffee, and it just drips, 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 and it's filling a cup. Every one of us, guys, has a cup with our name on it. And, you know, to some degree we know this, I think. I mean, we are restless without God, right? We are restless. We, we lack peace. We, we think, gosh, there's something wrong. There's something wrong with me. There's something wrong with the world. There's something wrong. And so we try to medicate it, right? We try to medicate it with things like romantic relationships or reputation or career or financial success or our kids. And we, we try to just try to stuff our hearts with something because we know something's not right. There's something wrong with me. I'm missing something. I need something. 
And you guys know that the people that have the most of the world's goods have the least peace. You realize that? I mean, just look at certain celebrities. I won't name names. You know who they are. They have the most of the world's goods, and they have the least peace. Um, that, that the things we try to cover up this lack of peace with God are things that don't work, right? Because our real problem is we lack peace with God. We have a problem with God. And the pagan religions of Jesus' day, they knew about this, okay? The, the, the pagan religions of Jesus' day, they knew that they weren't right with God. Actually, they thought they weren't right with the gods, right? There are multiple gods, and the gods are angry. And in their view, the gods were usually like moody, and they could be set off for any reason, they were unreasonable, and you know, when something went bad, you go, oh, the gods are mad at us again. I don't know why. They just get that way. And so the pagans of that time knew that there was unrest with God or gods, and so they tried to appease God, right? And we, we can see the sacrifices they made. And, and the more expensive the sacrifice, the more costly the sacrifice, the more they figured, like, this will do it, you know? Uh, if I offer this animal, maybe it's a bigger animal, maybe I offer a human, you know, the bigger thing I offer, the more God's likely to be at peace with me. And the gospel comes in in that context, in that first century context, and says, well, there's only one God you have to deal with, which is good news in and of itself, right? Instead of having a whole bunch. In that God, there's one God that exists, and he is angry, you know? And he should be, right? Why shouldn't he be? God's anger, guys, is always appropriate and predictable. The pagan gods, you know, anything sets them off. Not everything sets off God, right? He has a law, a clear and reasonable law. I mean, you think about like the Ten Commandments or love your neighbor as yourself, uh, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Like these aren't things that are unreasonable. And you think about God's commands, they're very reasonable. And God is never, he never gets angry or wrathful towards anything but breaking his clear and reasonable commands. And, and yet though we break them and God's wrath is his steady, unrelenting, unremitting opposition to all sin. It's a part of his character that he is a just judge. And so that wrath is building up. And that's a problem, right? And the pagans knew it was a problem and they figured they needed to appease him. But guys, the gospel is the good news that God appeases his own wrath. That's the difference. You think about the gospel being preached in that first century to pagans, and they're trying to find anything they can. Or maybe God wants this, or maybe the gods want that. And, and the gospel message is, you don't have anything valuable enough to solve your problem. You have nothing you can give. You can't give your money. You can't give anything. There's nothing you can give that's valuable enough. And yet God goes, I'm going to offer the peace offering. He's not required to. He's not the one that did anything wrong. And yet he offers the peace offering. God the Father loves us so much that he offered his son as the peace offering. God the Son loves you so much that he offered his own body on the cross as the peace offering. Isn't that great news? I mean, it's great news that you don't have to try and figure out something to make God, you know, no longer wrathful or to get him on your side or whatever. God has made that sacrifice for you if you'll trust in him. And so the gospel, guys, is the good news that we're saved from God by God, for God, Amen. right? We're saved because what's the problem? The problem is God's wrath. The gospel says we're saved from God, by God, right? God pays the whole price. This is really good news, guys. It's, like, it's crazy that this seems like bad news. You know, it's like you've got a problem with God and he paid it and you should take it. Like this is good news. There's like no downside to that, okay? You should take this. And then we're saved from God, by God, to God. What are we saved for? For a relationship of love with him. 
He wants us so much in a relationship of love with him, he offers a sacrifice of the greatest possible cost to restore peace, which is super cool because it's like he doesn't need to do that. It's not his problem. He makes it his problem. He sends his own son to die for us. What was that like, though, for Jesus? What was it like for Jesus to take that cup, that cup of God's wrath, and drink it dry? What was that like for him? I'll tell you guys, we can't fully know that. I mean, I think there's mystery here. There's mystery to his wounds. But one thing we can see is it must have been horrendous. Because here you have Jesus. He's always determined to do everything that that the Father commands. And he staggers, right? He falls on the ground. He's begging for any other option when he sees it. He took that cup in our place. And when he took that cup, guys, he lost all sense of physical, mental, psychological, spiritual well-being. You know, in ordinary life, even when we're suffering, there's a lot of good things we're experiencing that we don't notice. Jesus noticed the absence of all of it, okay? On the cross, he experiences a complete lack of anything joyful or comforting. He loses all the comfort of his family and friends. There were women that hung around down at the base of the cross. He lost all comfort from that. He lost all sense of his father's presence and love. You guys realize on the cross, Jesus doesn't cry out, my hands, my hands, or my feet, my feet. What does he cry out? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's where the pain of the cross is. The pain of the cross is in his hands or his feet, as horrendous as that is. It's, it's my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's where it hurts most, and it makes sense that it would. I mean, any of us that have had deep relationships with other people, losing that person is worse than physical pain, right? It's, it's worse to lose somebody close to you than, than to have physical pain. And here you have the Father and the Son who have enjoyed a relationship with each other throughout eternity past. And suddenly, when Jesus is in his darkest hour, he has the comfort of his Father ripped away from him. And he cries out, he shrieks out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's what it means to drink the cup. That's what it meant for Jesus to drink the cup. And in the place of his father's happy presence, Jesus feels another thing, which is the crushing weight of our sin credited to him. And keep in mind, this is a completely holy individual, right? This is somebody that has always hated sin himself and never partaken it. He always loved sinners, but never partook in sin, right? He's feeling the weight. Jesus on the cross is owning your sin. It's as if God, the judge, cries out on the cross and says, whose sin is this? And Jesus says, it's all mine. He owns it. Isn't that amazing? You think about a situation where, you know, something happens and, and, and the authorities come and somebody that's innocent says, oh, it's my crime. I'll take it. He took all of our sin as if he owns it as if it's his. On the cross, he took the cup of God's wrath and he discovers that crushing weight of sin. You guys know that feeling of condemnation when you've done something evil and you know it? And there's just no getting around it. And you feel that weight of condemnation? Imagine him who had never sinned owning all of our sins and taking them on as his own. The weight of that. The terror of that. Jesus felt the guilt of all of the people who would ever trust in him as Savior. All the sins of all the people that would ever trust in him as Savior. What does that make him feel like, right? What is that condemnation like? He would have felt the hopelessness of being the most guilty and vile person in all of history. I mean, think about the composite of sin that he's carrying. Um, He would have been standing in the presence of the Holy Father with nothing to plead but guilty. He's got no excuse. And you know what else that Jesus would feel? He'd feel the terror of standing before the white throne of judgment with nobody to be a substitute. 
I just beg you, don't be that person. Jesus did that, though. He stood before the Father without any substitute in his place. On the cross, Jesus' mind would have been a howling wasteland of loneliness and hopelessness and terror and emptiness and dread. I mean, any of us who have suffered mental illness, we've suffered mentally, we know that that kind of suffering can seem, even a minutes can seem like days. Minutes can seem like years when you're suffering in the mind, when you're suffering in the soul. Spurgeon said the mind can descend far lower than the body because in the mind there are bottomless pits. The flesh can only bear a certain number of wounds and no more, but the soul can bleed in 10,000 ways and die over and over again every hour. I mean, Jesus' hours on the cross would have stretched out to him like eons. I wonder if he could even bring himself to remember it had an end. He wouldn't have known even where he was. And it's not like there's a big timer there where he knows when this is going to end. But he would have felt that, that fear, that dread, that anticipation of everlasting suffering in that time on the cross. Guys, here is where we see the magnitude of our sin. It's so easy, guys, especially when you've been a Christian for a while, to minimize your sin and be like, you know, I used to be pretty jacked up, but now I'm... But this is where we see it, guys. This is where we see what our sin costs. But I want you to also hear, this is where we see the magnitude of God's love for you. When we say God loves you, it means this. <laughs> because a lot of times we say God loves you, oh yeah, he loves everybody. What is it? It's a light thing. This is not a light thing. This is the kind of love that jumps in front of the wrath of God and takes it for you. This is amazing. This is the kind of love of a father who gives his own son for you. A son who, who went willingly to the cross for you. It shows you the magnitude of his love. And what's interesting here, guys, too, in the garden is he's having this clear understanding of what the cross is. Now, of course, Jesus always knew that he came to die, right? He, he told that to his disciples, that he had come to die on the cross for our sins. So you might ask yourself, like, why does the dread of it crush him here? Why is Gethsemane all of a sudden this place of crushing anxiety and fear? Why, why is it squeezing him here? And, and I believe that what happened in the Garden of Gethsemane is that God is giving Jesus a preview of the cross that he didn't have before. I think that's what's happening here. I think he's giving him a clear preview of his suffering. I think God is giving Jesus a special ability to look over the ledge into the abyss of suffering on the cross, be able to see clearly into the cup and what's about to happen to him the next day. And it causes Jesus to fall on the floor. Take a look at verse 35. And going on a little further, he fell on the ground and prayed, if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, and just listen to the tenderness of this and the desperation. And, you know, he's calling his dad, Abba. He says, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. And he went again, away again, and he came back and prayed the same words again. But guys, it was the only way. You know, why is, Jesus, why is God silent when he prays, you know, another way? Jesus doesn't say, I just want out of this. He goes, if there's any other way to save these people, <laughs> if there's any other way to get rid of this cup for these people, I want to take that. And you guys know that if there was any other way, the Father would be quick to give it, right? I mean, he's not going to let his boy go through this. He's not going to let his eternally loved son, God the Son, go through this if, unless it was the only way. But he comes to realize, Jesus again realizes that if the cup passes from him, it's got to pass to you. That's the way it works. It either passes to him or it passes to you. That's what this is about. And Jesus wouldn't have that. 
And I just ask you, have you trusted in the Savior? Do you know that your cup has been passed from you to Christ? Do you know that? I mean, people say, oh, you know, religion, it's all about guilt and all that. No, it's not. It's about the cup of God's wrath being taken away by God himself. It's amazing. It's good news, guys. Have you had that happen for you? You might ask, well, why was it important for God to give Jesus this clear preview in the garden of the fiery hell he'd endure at the cross? And I think that, I think that the reason is that it, this was important is because Jesus needs to be a voluntary substitute for you. He needs to have informed consent, right? He needs to know exactly what he's going into. The Father is not going to trick or force Jesus to do this. He wants to give him a clear, clear preview of what will happen. Jesus has to choose an informed consent to die for you, to be your substitute. He has to be a volunteer, and he was a volunteer. I think a lot of times on Good Friday, we can think like Jesus was a martyr, Jesus was a victim. Jesus is not a victim. Jesus is a victor on the cross. He's come to do something. So in the garden, God is allowing Christ to see clearly into this. And you know what he does with that? He wrestles, he's on the ground, he's, he's praying. And look at verse 41. He consents. This is like the most manly, courageous thing. Now, just listen to all that stuff that Jesus has a clear vision of what's about to happen. And, he, and this is what he says. It's enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hand of sinners. And then he says this. Rise, let us be going. See my betrayers at hand. What's he saying? He's not saying like, my betrayer's coming, let's run. What does he say? Let's walk right into the trap. Isn't that amazing? After he knows all that, he knows exactly what's going to happen. He knows the physical pain of the cross. He knows the spiritual pain of the cross. And he says, arise, let's go. It's intentional, guys. It's intentional. Way more courage than any of those martyrs I told you about. He is a sovereign volunteer. Jesus is not a helpless victim on the cross. He is a warrior king dying in your place. As your victory. Jesus finished what he came to do. I've already talked about the cross, but at the end, John reports what Jesus said before he died. He said this, to telestai, which means it is finished, right? It is finished. He finished what he came to do. He stayed there until he took care of it all. And what was it? The cup, the cup of wrath with your name on it. He drank it. He drank it in full. He didn't leave the cross until every single drop was gone. It's empty, guys, never to be refilled. And you might say to yourself, well, what about my future sin? You know? I mean, I'm not thinking today I'm going to stop. You know, I want to stop, but I'm going to sin. I know I'm going to sin. I'm a sinner. God's going to work on me in that, but I'm still going to sin. What about the future? Guys, how much of your sin was future when he did this? It was all future. The cup he's drinking is the cup at the end of your life that is full, totally full cup, and he drinks it dry. He died for all your future sin as well, your whole life, if you'll trust in him. And then John, Jesus says, it is finished. And then I love what else John adds. It says that Jesus said it's finished and it says he gave up his spirit. I think that is so awesome. Spirit not taken from him. It doesn't say he died or they killed him. He gave up his spirit. He's like, I'm done here. I got this done. What's amazing is that Jesus is in control, guys. He's in control on the cross, and he's, he's holding himself there. Those nails don't hold him. He's holding himself there till it's done, like the song says, right? Until it was accomplished. He drank it dry. He didn't leave a drop for you to fear. And if you're trusting in Jesus and you have fresh 
guilt or condemnation about sin and you have repented and, and, and confessed that to God and you're still feeling either fearful or guilty or condemned, guys, the cup is empty. It is empty. Okay? People say, you know, Christianity is about guilt and all this stuff. No, it's not. Not if you're doing it right. It's not about that. It's about your debt being removed. It is finished. Greatest act of love and courage ever. And so as we go to these next few songs, we're going to contemplate the Lord's Supper. So if you're trusting in Christ, I'd ask you during the next few songs, come up here, grab a piece of this bread, grab one of these cups, and remember the death of Christ. And I've put these nails out for you guys. Um, take one with you. you know, take it with you. Put it in your car somewhere. Uh, put it out of the reach of children. It's very sharp. Um, keep it in your car. Put it on your desk. Whatever. Remember, it's finished, guys. This doesn't make you feel bad for Jesus. This is to say, your sin was thoroughly dealt with. You know, sometimes they're like, oh, well, I know that God's forgiven me, but I can't forgive myself. Oh, brother, it's been dealt with. Are you dealing with it more severely than this? It's been dealt with. The cup is empty. So take one of these and, and, and keep it. As we take the bread, we remember Jesus saying, this should mean so much tonight, right? This is my body broken for you. Gave you his body. On the cross. And then he takes the cup and he says, this is my blood poured out for you for the forgiveness of your sins. It reminds us of his life drain. And that Jesus drank the cup of God's wrath so that you can drink the cup of salvation. Amen. You can drink the cup of salvation and it's a cup that never runs out. The grace is unlimited grace. Unlimited grace. Um, one of the most telling things you can ask a follower of any religion is... What did it cost your God to love you? Think about all the world's religions and think about that question. You ask people of different religions, whether Muslim or Hindu or whatever, what did it cost your God to love you? We learned tonight we have the best possible answer to that question. Here is love, the cross. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your rich love. Lord, as we look at the cross, we don't think of somehow... You didn't want to save us. You didn't want to forgive us. But that somehow Jesus stepped in the way. Oh no, we know from tonight that you, the Father, had, came up with a plan to save us. You loved us even when this cup of wrath was for us, which is hard to wrap our minds around. That on the one hand, we stood before your wrath, but on the other hand, you loved us so much that you sent your Son. And we just thank you. That is a love that we don't have in ourselves, that's for sure. And Jesus, we thank you for being willing to come. And we're just amazed that we think about you in the garden, collapsed on the ground, desiring some other way, seeing that cup with all of its pain and torture and darkness, and then standing up and saying, I will take it for them. What can we say? How can we thank you for that? There's nothing to say. We just say thank you. We take the Lord's Supper. We remember it, but we just, we're at a loss. And Holy Spirit, we thank you for making this real to us. We thank you that you have opened our eyes to believe this, that you've given us new life, that all this means something. <laughs> it's amazing to think about. There's a lot of people out there today who don't even know what today is. 
But this means something to us, and it, not because we're good people, but because you brought us to life. Thank you for that. We pray, Lord, as we take this supper, that you would give us a rich experience of this. That we would commune with you in a special way. We pray, Lord, for tomorrow as we, as we think about Holy Saturday and we think about those poor disciples. That would have been the worst day to be a Christian ever on that Saturday. And we thank you that Sunday's coming. That your son didn't stay dead. He came back to life and he shows us. When we look, we'll look at his scars, we see that our lives will be healed and new in the world to come. We thank you so much for that. I pray for anybody here, Lord, for that these things are new or maybe they don't have the, the feel that they should, Lord. I pray that you'd make that real to their own souls, even as we worship, Lord, that you would help us to find more and more joy in you. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to the weekly podcast of the Menifee Campus of Covenant Grace Church. If you'd like to know more about Covenant Grace Church, visit us online at covgrace.org.